So I started running a few months back, and uh, my wife has coerced me into a half marathon. And I began to look up some facts about preparing for a half marathon. So pretty much whatever you find as far as the research concerning preparing for a marathon is kind of the same thing, just maybe on a smaller scale for a half marathon. So I've been reading some things, and I found some interesting facts that I figured that I would share with you this morning since we're kind of talking about this concept of, of running a race, and I'll unpack that more later. But these are the things that you could expect or should expect during your first marathon or half marathon, all right? Now, this was, it's usually a bad idea if you're a, a hypochondriac to go to WebMD or places like that, you know, because then you think you've got everything that's on there. Or if you watch shows like House or The Good Doctor and you see everybody's got all these illnesses, disease, and you think that you have those disease because those diseases because you have a symptom that's the same. I'm running yesterday, last night with my wife and I feel kind of short of breath. Imagine that, running four and a half miles and feeling short of breath. And I said, I said you know, how do what, what does it feel like to have CO, COPD, Sarah? She's like, she just laughs at me. She says, you don't have COPD. She goes, they, they breathe in and it's really hard to breathe out. And I could breathe out very well. And I'm like, what is it, what is it like to have sarcoidosis, Sarah? She's like, uh, losing elasticity in your lungs? Don't have that either, okay? So, so, so it's a bad idea for me to research some of these things, but I do it nonetheless. So let me just share with you by way of introduction a few of these things that... Uh, that I have found. These are things that could happen or that you could expect during your first marathon or half marathon. Right out of the gate, bathroom issues. In preparing for a long run, they say the day that your run comes, the day if your run is scheduled for 9 a.m. or 8 a.m., then you need to, so many months out, start running at that same time so that your body and the movements of your body can get used to that time so that you're not having a movement during your movement of the run, right? So you have to be very, very careful with that. Some of you are, are well, let's just leave it at that, okay? So blisters, not only bathroom issues, you can expect blisters, black toenail, footwear pains, chafing, which we love that, don't we? Small annoyances. And I said, what does that mean, small annoyances? So I started reading on it, and it's like, you may have someone running next to you that has a little jingle in their pocket. Maybe they didn't get rid of their keys and you just want to trip them and step on their face because stop the noise, you know, or somebody has a weird breathing pattern that's going on and it just gets on your last nerve. Now, I haven't run extremely long distances. Maybe Natalie or Caroline or some others can vouch for that, but um, I just best not run next to my wife because I don't need to be annoyed with her and she doesn't need to be annoyed with me. We need to keep our marriage a happy, sacred place, so it's best that we just run separate, okay? So... Small annoyances, unexpected confidence. I thought this is a good thing, unexpected confidence. So I'm evidently gonna be running and feel very confident all of a sudden. Unexpectedly, this confidence is gonna come out of nowhere. So any of you that lack self-esteem or have confidence issues, take up running and there will be unexpected bursts of confidence that will, uh, that will just hit you, I guess. Pregnancy-like cravings pregnancy-like cravings. So guys, basically what I'm understanding here is if we want to really understand what it's like to be pregnant, we just need to go run for a few miles, right? Is that right? No, no. But you get unexpected pregnancy-like cravings. And I don't know exactly what that means for me because I've never been pregnant, but I'm looking forward to these unexpected pregnancy-like cravings. And then the last one they listed was everything just hurts. Everything hurts. And there are very few of these that give me reason to get excited about the death march. And those aren't the scary things that happen when you get ready to run, all right? So there's a list of scary things that happen. Let me just read those to you. During a long run, a subconscious part of the brain opens up arteries that fill your muscles and close down other parts of the bloodstream. Because you need blood that comes to certain parts of your body. So it says, hey, you don't need this as much. And it sounds cool, sciencey. This is how God works, biologically speaking. It's fantastic. But when I'm running, it's going to be in my brain that there are things shutting down. And I don't like the idea of that. Okay, I am on anxiety medicine, and I will admit that. And that does not help my anxiety problems, thinking that my body's going to literally start shutting off these passages that carry blood, which I need to fuel my body. But that's just one of the scary things. Let me continue. During a long run, sugar levels will be depleted. And taking in carbs while running doesn't really help that much because they are difficult to metabolize. The blood is too busy 
diverted elsewhere during the run. So because you're running long distances and because your body has told certain vessels, certain parts of the bloodstream to shut down so they can maximize the carrying of blood to other places, you all of a sudden can't metabolize things because of what's happening. So runners, another scary thing is runners have risk of doing acute damage to their joints and skeletal system because of the erroneous strain of long-distance runs. And I think that's an obvious one, right? You run a long time. God didn't design us to run. You know, legs are for walking, not for running, but we do it anyway because we're stupid. So people have died of dehydration. Okay, we're not talking about, oh, this blood vessel or this whatever is cut itself off so that I can maximize the flow of blood somewhere else. I'll survive that, but it'll scare me. Well, people die as well of dehydration. And you can overhydrate. It's a weird thing. And I'm like, I'm not going to read any more of that. You know, I'm just, I don't know what overhydration is or uh, versus dehydration. Where's the happy medium? One more scary thing was during a long run, the level of cortisol, am I saying that right, nurses? The level of cortisol, a steroid hormone, increases. High levels can cut down blood supply to the kidneys and cause issues in your kidneys. So you marathoners, good luck, and you are dumb. That's the way that is. So those are the scary things that can happen during a run. But there are tips that they give for completing and successfully completing a marathon or a half marathon. So these aren't so scary, aren't so bad. So I'm going to end with these so that for those of us that are daring to run any kind of distance, we can kind of have these uh, as our last thoughts. And I noticed this, whenever you consult the experts and they say, okay, well, what's the best way to prepare to train for a run? What's the objective? You notice no one says, well, when you start, just finish. Nobody just leaves it there. They don't just say, okay, start and finish. That's the goal. They don't say that. They don't say that the key to a successful marathon or half marathon is to finish. They don't tell you that. It seems obvious. They never say start running and don't stop until the end. It may sound like practical advice, but is that all there is? No, there's all kinds of studies and all kinds of science and all kinds of things that go into what it is to prepare yourself for a successful experience in a marathon. Once in training mode, don't swap your gear, they say. Don't swap your gear. Whatever you're wearing close to that time, whatever you're used to wearing, shoes, shorts, shirt, whatever it is, don't swap your gear. I would probably even say if you're used to wearing headphones, don't swap those either. Don't change weight, even though it's measured in grams. Don't do anything. Don't change anything, they say. Run on soft surfaces if possible during training. Figure out diet and hydration plans during shorter runs. Run with someone else. Ensure the correct running form Keep your arms in motion. I was running with Sarah last night and I had read that to increase your pace, just increase your arm movement. And I'm really trying to keep my pace with my legs at the same pace while moving my arms more quickly, all right? It's called mind division. As a drummer, drummers have mind division. They can do this right over here while they're, you know, while they're doing a different beat over here and while they're doing something different with their foot. So I have mind division and I thought as a drummer, having mind division, I will use that in my run. So I'm trying to run while doing this, and I can't. I'm trying to do this, and I can't even do it now, right? It's, it's really hard to do, and I'm looking like an idiot, no doubt, right? As I'm running, she's laughing at me, and we're carrying on. I'm like, Sarah, this is, this is what they say do. And so as I pick up my pace with my arms, my legs pick up their pace, and then I just get tired more quickly. So keep your arms in motion, they say. Drink on the run, not alcohol. Drink water, drink something for electrolytes or whatever it says. Drink on the run. Run like a clock. Make sure your training runs are ran at the same time as your marathon run or half marathon run so that your body's potty habits, as I said a while ago, will sync up for the race. Because I haven't had this issue, but I can imagine the problem that would occur when you've got to go and you've still got 10 plus miles to go. Carbo load rather than fat load, warm up, eat breakfast, et cetera, et cetera. Well, start slow, relax, think laps, not miles, and talk to yourself. Talk to yourself. So each of these play a role in determining not just when you finish, but how you finish, and that's what matters. It's not just when you finish, it's how you finish. And how you finish is determined by, or is contingent upon how you're preparing, how you're training, how you're 
doing, working towards the finish line. And this is the sentiment that Paul speaks of in Scripture. And I'm going to start not by the first verse that we're going to be dealing with in Philippians, but I want to start with 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, where Paul says, as he writes to Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. Paul's been released from Roman imprisonment, or this is, he's, he's in prison now, he's about to die, okay? So Paul's about to die. He says, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. And he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. When he fought the good fight, that was during the run, right? That was, that was as he was working as a sojourner to sojourn successfully, he fights hard. He fought with grit. He fought for the glory of God. He fought and fought so that at the end he can say, I have fought the good fight, and he finished the race. He kept the faith. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. So there's this sentiment of running a race. Paul uses sports metaphors all the time. Sports was a thing that happened there. You had the, uh, in Rome especially, you had the you know, the, uh, the, the Colosseum and all of these things. There were sports, there was Olympics, there were all of these things that took place. So Paul is speaking in a language that they would understand. They understand running. They understand com- competition. So he says, I've fought the good fight. I finished the race, I've, I've kept the faith. So then we move over to Philippians and we begin at Philippians 18b, 18b. And I wanna say this kind of as a thesis statement going into the rest of this sermon is that successful sojourning is not measured by the finish line but the contents that mark the journey. Because here's the reality, church. Everyone's a sojourner. Everyone has a beginning and an end. Whether they believe in the afterlife, whether they believe that Christians die and they go to be with Christ and we inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, which we believe to be true, whether they believe that they're reincarnated into their mother's cat, or whether they believe that there's nothing at all that happens, we just end. We're just a cluster of cells that are fizzing for the duration of our life until finally we fizz out because that's the language that an atheist would use. No matter what your belief is, We all have to subscribe to the fact that we're sojourners. We're passing through. We have a beginning and we have an end. This isn't permanent for us. It's not permanent for anybody, this earthly life. So successful sojourning is not measured by the finish line, but by the contents that mark the journey. And this is especially important for a Christian to understand because what we do during the journey ensures a successful finish. So it's not about just arriving. We've often said it's not about how you start, but how you finish. No one says it's not about how you start, but that you finish. It's not about how you start, but, but that you finish. We say it's not about how you start, but how you finish. There's a way for us to sojourn together. And it's not measured. The success of that is not measured by the finish line, but by the contents that mark the journey. So what I have are just a few things that I want to highlight in a few verses here that show how Paul was set up for success as a sojourner. Last week, we talked about a sojourner's joy, so this week, we'll talk about a sojourner's success, and this applies to you and me as sojourners. We're passing through, and you should want to know, how do I arrive at the very end successfully? Because I don't want to just arrive. I don't just want to get there. I want to get there and have accomplished something to advance the gospel. I want to get there to accomplish something for the kingdom of God. I don't want to just arrive I don't want to pretend to live in this land of neutrality. There is really no such thing. You're either for or against. You're either productive or not. I want to get to this place, to this end as a sojourner and have success and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You want to say, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've actively kept the faith. So a sojourner's success is first depending on factors outside of himself. Listen to what Paul says. Yes, I will rejoice, he says. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation or my deliverance. He says, first of all, I have this confidence. I know this thing. Listen, he says, I know for a fact that through your prayers, saints, 
through the help of the Spirit of Jesus, that these, this will turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation. Now, what is Paul talking about? He, does a, he, he means it will turn out not that his life will be spared. He's not saying that. What he means by it will turn out for his deliverance is that he will either be delivered from this or he will be delivered into his Father's care, into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I will be delivered one way or the other, and I know that through your prayers and I know that through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that these things will happen. And he says these things with joy. He's already said, I rejoice because the gospel is preached, and no matter what the motivation is, as long as it's preached, because the power's in the message, not in the messenger. He says, I will rejoice. He says again, hey, I will rejoice. I rejoice in the fact that I am confident, that I know that your prayers matter. And that the help of Jesus matters. This text is intended to draw our attention to the power of prayer. That's not the main point of the text. I would call it probably an indirect application, but it's there. He's highlighting the power of prayer. He's highlighting the saints who pray and they intercede on behalf of another brother in Christ. You see, we have this gift in this line of access to God. Everyone who's in Christ has a gift. Do you understand the preciousness of this gift that you have in a direct line of access to God that, let's be honest, we probably don't take advantage of very often? And when you think about the fact that God loves, he relishes the fact that his children come to him because praying to God shows a humility, it shows a trust, it shows a confidence, it shows a belief in the sovereignty of God and to the care and concern of God. It shows an acceptance of the love of God and realizing that he's there for us, so therefore who can be against us? It shows that we believe that he's trustworthy and we don't have to carry our concerns to anyone else or carry our concerns for ourselves because he says, cast your cares upon me. And don't lean on your own understanding. He says, in all of your ways, acknowledge, uh, acknowledge, your path, acknowledge me and I will make your path straight. So this text is, is, is calling our attention to prayer. And you, when you think about the examples that we have, the, the two that don't need to pray, the two that are one, a part of the three that is one, the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Jesus intercedes for us and the scripture says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And they don't need prayer like we need prayer They don't need anything. We need fellowship. We need communication with the Father, right? We have to have that. We need that. It is a gift to us to have. And we could either be gracious with that as we intercede for others, or we can be selfish with that as we only intercede for ourselves. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Jeremiah 29, 12, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. James 5, 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Let them pray. It doesn't say go find a cave and hide in it if you're in trouble. It doesn't even say go to a doctor. It doesn't say go to find someone who can defend you. It says let them pray. Let them pray. That should be our first course of action is prayer because scripture calls our attention to doing so. So we can be gracious with that or we can be selfish with that. And the church at Philippi, Paul is boasting in them and boasting in his confidence in Jesus Christ to work in tandem somehow with their prayers, with the prayers of the saints. And it's hard to explain. I don't think I could explain it, but understand that prayers do make things happen and they work somehow in tandem with the sovereignty of God. We just have to accept that because I've yet to find anyone who can explain that. I've listened to great theologians talk about it, and that's pretty much the summation of what they say. They say, listen, God listens, God hears, and God responds to the prayers of the saints. And he will respond according to his will, not yours. And it works perfectly. It's compatible with his sovereign design and his predetermined plan. So just know what you're praying if God answers It was a part of God's predetermined plan, and it fits so beautifully, and it's a compatible prayer with God's working So we can be gracious, just as the church at Philippi was in their prayers for Paul. The currency that pays for your line of connection to the Father is the gospel. The currency that pays for your line of connection to the Father is the gospel. Because of Jesus, we have a line to God. We have a gift. Because God does not hear the prayers of those who are not in Christ. And if that causes you a moment to pause, let me share this scripture with you. 
Isaiah 59.2 says that your sins have made a separation. Speaking to someone who's lost, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And it has caused him to turn his face away from you so that he will not hear. He will not hear. Now, it's a fun discussion to have when you say, well, what about the prayer of someone who's lost? If they're lost in praying this, does that not precede some kind of faith? Well, I think the answer is that, is that heart regeneration precedes faith. I think God has regenerated a heart of someone who's not in Christ. He gives them new life, and then they pray in faith as a response of the life that God has already given them. Otherwise, why in the world would they pray? Why would a dead man in his trespasses and sins, complete darkness, settled in darkness, opposed to God, why would that man or that woman pray for Jesus? Unless God awakened faith in their life. But that's another conversation for another time. So Paul says, I know this. I know this for a fact. I know and I have confidence. I have joy because through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance one way or the other. I'll either go and be with Jesus or I'll continue laboring for Jesus here on earth. So this is unlike the American mantra, which says man writes his own destiny. The sojourner's strength comes from Christ in the midst of weakness. The sojourner's hope comes from Christ in the midst of despair. The sojourner's faith is a gift that was given by Christ to him. So if you want to be successful in your sojourn, in your in your in your journey from point A to point B in this life, which we are delivery boys and delivery girls, we have a message to give, and we do that until God takes us home. That's our, that's our job. Glorify God, fight for truth, and go home, right? That's what we talked about last week. So we do that, and if you realize that your success is contingent upon factors outside of you, that is a way to set yourself up for success. In other words, don't try to go it alone. Don't try to go it on your own strength. Rely heavily on the spirit of Jesus Christ and rely heavily on the prayers of the saints. And I'll just say this one more thing about prayer. This is just another reason that you should be interceding for your elders and we should be interceding for one another. Whether someone's going to work tomorrow and we're interceding on their behalf just so that they can be the light of Christ, these things matter. These things matter, but I fear that sometimes we're like, well, they're not dying, so I don't really give a lot of attention to that. It's only when someone's really sick or when someone's about to go to the hospital for open-heart surgery that maybe we get serious about prayer. That may not be you, but it's me sometimes. But I think we're called to a certain attention here, and that is intercede for one another all the time. You have an example of that in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Christ. Do as they do. So a sojourner's success depends on factors outside of himself, two of three. A sojourner's success is tethered to his perspective of the journey that he's on. Let me read that again. The sojourner's success is tethered or tied to his perspective of the journey that he's on. So how does Paul view his situation? Listen, let's just read, and you can see it for yourself. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. And he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And that's the deliverance he speaks of. He says, that's, that's the sum total of, of hope and my eagerness. And that's where that comes from. He says that I know for a fact, because of this Christ-centeredness, I know that it will turn out for the glory of God in my body, and further, he says, in my life or in my death. He continues, he says, but that which full courage now is always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So a sojourner's success is tied to or tethered to his perspective of the journey. Paul was an optimistic opportunist. That's what he was. He was an optimistic opportunist. And we would do good to adopt his view. In other words, he's looking for opportunity in everything. It may be a bad situation. I would say jail is a bad situation. I would say looking towards his life being taken from him for the gospel's sake, I would say that's a tough situation, a little bit of a sticky situation. But what is Paul's response to that situation? What is his perspective as a sojourner? It's this is an opportunity. 
Remember we talked about what we see in Philippians 4.22, how the message of the gospel through the guards had reached all the way to Caesar's house? Because Paul saw opportunity. He could have had the opposite perspective and said, you know what, I'm just gonna sit here. I'm gonna pray and keep to myself and hope and hope and hope that I'll be delivered from this dank jail, from this apartment type scenario where he's arrested. So let's kind of apply that to some common day situations. Your boss is in a bad mood. So maybe you fret going in because you're gonna, you're gonna just take the heat probably. Do you fret that kind of experience or do you light up with excitement because of the opportunity that you might have to honor Jesus? And we could really apply that in so many, all of, all of your jobs. I'm sure that at some point, someone in this room has not been happy to go to work or they may be walking into a situation that is not exactly what they desire. It's gonna be a bad day. It's gonna be a hard day. Or maybe, maybe, Maybe your, your kid is sick and you gotta take your kid to the doctor and you dread that and it's a bad situation. Maybe, maybe your kid has been diagnosed with something that's really bad or maybe even terminal and that's an awful thought for any of us, but, but the rule still applies. Are you an opportunistic optimist and say, so you know what? This is gonna provide opportunity for me to glory in Jesus Christ and it may not be my body, but it's somebody else's body. It's my child's body, maybe it's my wife's body, maybe it's my husband's body, maybe it's someone very close to me that's gonna go through this and this, is this something that I'm going to fret or is it something that provides me with the opportunity where the rubber really meets the road to bring glory to Jesus rather than shame? Someone persecutes you for your faith, do you smile about that and do you look at it as an opportunity or do you try to get out of the situation as quickly as you can to find safety? both physically, mentally, and emotionally. You get fired, you get sick, your house burns down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you view it as an opportunity or do you view it as just an attack that you just need God to rescue you from or get, or get off of your back? Every context, every situation is an opportunity God has placed in our lap to honor him and that's Paul's perspective. And that's what it takes for successful sojourning. Because do we understand, if we got serious about our faith, do you understand the opposition that you will be up against? It, it, it is easy now. It's easy in our walls. Well, we're not pestering anybody. We're not bothering anybody. It's easy. It's easy to proceed as we are. It's easy to be bold in a situation like this because no one in this room, or no one should in this room, condemn one another for for, for, for their boldness, for speaking truth, and so on. But when we step out there where we belong, because the church gathers to do what? To scatter. If we step out into the world, not being of the world, but being in the world, if we do that, and we start pressing the issue of the greatest need that people have, what do you think is going to occur? Persecution. Hardship. Strife. Stuff that you're not going to like. But for successful sojourning, it requires the right perspective regarding the journey, and that is to be an optimistic opportunist, opportunist like Paul. You see, we struggle with our money, time, and our resources to be used for the gospel. I mean, let's be honest. Maybe not everybody, maybe not all the time, but we struggle. Man, we gotta support this missionary. You know, we, we, we have to do this. I have to, I have to give this. I've got to, you know... Uh, have a family to look after and our elders are pushing us to invest in another person. I know that we struggle with that. My wife would, would, would readily admit that. I mean, she loves her responsibility that she has to, to our kids and she loves being a mother. And she's burdened a lot of the times with work and with house and she, and she keeps the finances, A, because I'm terrible with numbers and I'm the spender, she's a saver, so it makes sense. And the times that I've tried to take over, she just gets more anxious than when she has control of the finances. So she just holds on to those. She just keeps control of the finances. And I just take my, take my stripes when I've spent too much and then make my apologies and we move on. But my wife will be the first to admit that the idea of carving out more time in her life to pour into people is taxing because it's hard. It's demanding of our time. It demands our resources. It demands our, our efforts, our, our intellect, and our emotion. 
But what happens when there's a demand for our life? If we're not willing to give material, resources, possession, all these things, if we're not willing to say, for the gospel, here it is. Yeah, we have, a, we, have a, we have a third vehicle, right? Not us, but let's say this is your scenario. You have a third vehicle, you only need two, you're saving one for when your kid grows up or something like that, and then someone falls in hard times and you think, you know what, I could, I could give them this vehicle, I could let them use this vehicle. Instead, you say, ah, we don't wanna put miles on it, it'll just depreciate in value and we just wanna keep it where it is and wanna take care of it and there could be things that happen and ah, we just don't wanna do it. In the name of wisdom, in the name of planning for the future, you say, no, we could really help this person and we could be gospel-centered in our life, but we're just not going to. If you're not willing to do that, what's gonna happen when Christ demands your life? That scares me to death. So if giving our time and resources for the gospel is taxing on us, what will, what will we say when God asks for one thing that matters to us most, our life? At the end, Paul's concern was honoring God by offering his body as a living or dying sacrifice. Listen to this. Here's Paul's perspective. His perspective was that of a radical Christ-centeredness. He had a radical Christ-centeredness. He says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is not typical language of any human being, because we value our lives Paul writes about that in Ephesians. He goes, no one hated his own flesh, but he cherishes and nourishes it. He takes care of it because we don't want to die. But when your journey is marked by radical Christ-centeredness, the perspective changes. And it's not some sadistic hope to be taken out today, but it's a longing and a desire to finally see the true beauty of Jesus. That's the perspective that is required for successful sojourning. You say, what does it mean to live as Christ? Meaning to live for and by the gospel. It means to live with Christ as the centerpiece of the universe. It means to view him as he is. We're not creating a position for him. We're just recognizing the position that he has. The center of all things, the sum total of life, love, beauty, hope, grace, truth, all of these things. And then Paul explains what he means as if that weren't clear enough to live as Christ when he says, for me to continue on will mean fruitful labor. If I'm to remain in this flesh, it will mean fruitful labor for me. So in other words, he says, if God's not gonna take me, then he's keeping me here by necessity. He's keeping me here for a reason, for a purpose, and that purpose is to advance the gospel. So how do we have fruitful labor? Well, we see through gospel lenses, which we've talked about before. We see the world as gospel opportunity. We see the world through the lenses that God has given us as the saints. We see those lenses through the righteousness of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, all of these things. That's how we view the world. And when we view the world that way, we become what? Opportunistic. Uh, I'm sorry, optimistic opportunist. Thank you. So we see with gospel lenses, we speak with gospel fluency, not just giving moralistic responses, but actually speaking to the identity that people have or speaking to the identity that people need in Jesus. And we live with gospel intentionality. Again, doing, living, moving, having our being for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. But Paul doesn't just say live, uh, to live as Christ. He says to die is, is gain. So how is leaving everything you know, everything you love, and everything you've worked for your entire life, how is that gain, is the question. And here it is. Because death finally unites Savior and Saint for the unhindered, unadulterated, unfettered recognition of Christ's presence and his preeminence. Because we experience Christ as no earthly man has ever experienced Christ since the fall. Because his glory is such that heaven has no need for a sun to light its way. His glory is enough. Because his beauty is the sum total of all things beautiful and the very standard for which we determine beauty. Just to name a few. This would be a good place to insert all 26, 27 minutes of that, of that Easter monologue that I gave just about the person of Christ. That's just a, a, a very small humanistic glimpse of why death is gain for us. 
Paul's radical Christ-centeredness calls him to have great affections for Jesus. And we all want great affections for Jesus. We want our affections to be stirred for Christ. But let me tell you the order that these, that these things happen. Christ, a radical Christ-centeredness, gives way to affections for Jesus. The byproduct of radical Christ-centeredness is our affections being stirred for Christ. And let me illustrate it in this way. I'll illustrate it. Let me, let me think through this. I'll illustrate it in this way. So my kids have been gone for three weeks now. Well, uh, almost a month now. And I've seen them a little bit, but not much, right? And it stinks. You know, I miss my kids a lot. I have a fondness towards my children. Now, if the McWhite kids are out of town, do I love the McWhite family? Absolutely. But do I miss the McWhite kids like I miss my kids? No. I don't have the same experience being their parent. I don't have that kind of experience. So there's a different fondness that I have for my children. I think the, the familial paradigm, the familial structure that God gives us is, is such a helpful illustration to how this all works out. My children have become a centerpiece in my life. They're not Jesus. They're not taking the place of Jesus. And sometimes kids do, I get that. But they don't take the place of Christ, but they have a fixture in my life. They're a fixture in my life so that when I'm away from them or whatever, that there's a, there, there's a fondness that I miss them. And because of their position in my life, it affects me in different ways when I'm not around them or when they act out or when they act up. The human relationship paradigm is, is fascinating. It's a prime example of what it is to have your affections stirred for someone because of the role they already play in your life. I have friends that I don't see very much anymore and I miss them. I miss them. You know, like my kids, I miss my kids. Like my wife, who's at work today, I, I miss my wife. I enjoy being around my wife, so I miss my wife. Because there's a fondness there, because of the relationship, because of the position that she has in my life. So my affections are often stirred for my wife. But before I met my wife, and I just knew, well, I met her, but uh, uh, it was just, uh, she, played, she played bass in the band that I was leading during college, right? So I just knew her in a very platonic way, didn't know her much at all. I just knew that she looked good and she played bass and that was pretty hot to me. So, so she would go home and that was about all there was, you know, because I was maybe in and out of some relationships. She was in a relationship. So it was kind of a no-go, forget it. I went to college, didn't really, th I went to seminary, didn't really think about her much because of the position she had in my life was just at an acquaintance level. She just came on Wednesday nights. We practiced for 45 minutes to an hour. We played for 30 minutes and then that was it. We didn't have much conversation. But then I get married to her. Well, I date her then I get married to her right? We engage, we get married, all these things, and I've spent, I've spent a, a long time with her. And so because of the experience that I have with her, because of the place she has in my life, my fondness has grown and my affections are often stirred for her. We meet strangers all the time. They become fixture or centerpieces in our life, and then we experience affections for them. All that to say, the radical Christ-centeredness, if you want affections for Jesus, he has to be the centerpiece. It doesn't work the other way. You don't see people who don't know Christ longing for Christ and having their affection stirred for him. It doesn't work that way. Dead hearts don't desire Jesus. If I have my affection stirred for Christ, whether it's listening to a song, whether it's hearing word that you guys have prayed for me, if my affections are stirred in that way, it's because Christ is already in my life. It's because he's already become this centerpiece in my life. He's already become a fixture. So I'm saying this to help you out because some people think, you know what? If, if I can just have my emotions, have my affections stirred for Jesus, uh, this is simulates churning a pot like a cauldron, like he's a wizard doing some weird stuff. So if I can just have this happen in my life, then I'll want Christ to be the centerpiece. If he can just stir me up and put some spiritual butterflies or bats or whatever in my bosom, then I can, I can pursue him because I'll have the feeling to do so. Well, we can't rest on feelings. We can't rest on feelings, right? If love was just a feeling, I'd be in some trouble. My wife would be in some trouble because sometimes she probably doesn't like me. I can guarantee you sometimes she doesn't like me. Yesterday, I may or may not have said something kind of smart elegantly that I may or may not have had to apologize for, and I guarantee you at the moment, she didn't like me. Probably didn't like me after I apologized either. Had to have some time there. I just had an attitude yesterday, and I don't know why, and, I've, and, I've, and I've, I've made that right. But that's my point. 
This is why Paul's perspective was what it was. He didn't have his affection stirred, therefore he made Christ the centerpiece. Christ interposed himself into Paul's life, placed himself, as Christ does, in the center of our life, therefore our affections can be stirred for Christ. And it begs the question, if your affections are never stirred for Jesus, it might mean that he is not a fixture in your life. It might mean that. Because supernaturally speaking, how can you have Jesus as a fixture and your affections never be stirred? How can that happen? I would argue that it can't. It's hard to grow fond of someone you haven't had any experience with. Jesus becomes the center. Our affections are stirred through his word. They're stirred through singing songs. They're stirred through prayer. Stirred through seeing the body of Christ living and one anothering each other. They're stirred through his mercies, his sacrifice. Music is, is, is such a great help for me. I can be listening to some song that's not bad, but it's not a Christian song. I like some country music. I like different kind of music. And then when a Christian comes on, something switches in my brain. Something switches in my heart and my affections are stirred for Jesus. I want to pray. I want to talk to him. I want to know him. I want to read my Bible. All because this song. All because of the lyrics, Evan. You know, all because, uh, all because these lyrics and they're exalting Christ that stirred my affections because I already had Christ as a fixture. For many, the center of their lives is themselves. So they seek the things that stir their affections for themselves. They must have the praises of men guilty, so they do things to solicit those praises. They must have the things, things their way, so they manipulate to ensure that things happen as they want them to happen. For some, the center of their lives is a social status, so they speak with certain language, purchase from certain stores, live in certain neighborhoods. No offense to anybody in O'Neill Village at all. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. But in some cases, it's true, right? In some cases, it's true. So when your affections are stirred, it's a strong indication of what is the permanent centerpiece type of a fixture in your life. Because Paul's sojourn was so radically Christ-centered, there was no price that he wouldn't pay to honor Jesus. So he says, whether by my life or by my death. And this is, this is familiar language. Because Paul says the same thing to the Romans. Except instead of, instead of saying it about himself, he said it to them, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And Paul has practiced what he preaches. Paul practices what he preaches. So, if you want to have a successful sojourn, realize that that success is tied to your perspective of the journey. And the final one is this, and it's, it's short. A sojourner's success is achieved by embracing the necessity of the journey. A sojourner's success is achieved by embracing the necessity of the journey. You say, where do you get that? Look, it says here in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, means living for and by the gospel, Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. This is a man whose affections are stirred for Christ. He says, I, I don't know. If you and I are faced with this, die or stay. <laughs> stay, thanks. <laughs> I've got a wife, I've got kids, I've got things I like to do. You know, I, I like where I live, I like the upstate. I, I've, got, I've got things. I'm good for now. If we're honest with ourselves, that might be our response. Not Paul, he says, I'm torn. I want to be with Jesus. I want to die. And that's what a radical Christ-centeredness does for you. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh and get this is more necessary on your account. So there's a necessity that we must embrace if we're going to have success as sojourners. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in joy and in faith. Sometimes, sometimes we do things by necessity, not because it's our first choice. My wife has in the pantry what she calls kid food. Kid food is Pop-Tarts. Kid food is toaster strudels, Jimmy Dean glorious pancakes on a stick, Waffles, Lunchables, Smuckers, Brand, Peanut, Butter, and Jelly, Uncrustables. Don't judge me. I love them. So on and so forth. And she says, stay away from the kid food. Not because it'll make me fat and unhealthy, but because it's the kid's food. But I love the kid food. I love cereal. I could live off Captain Crunch and Fruity Pebbles. 
Lucky Charms, if they just made Lucky Charms that was without the lucky and just the charms, I would be thrilled. I love that stuff. I love it. I think it's on the banqueting table at heaven. I just love it. It's going to be fantastic. And you, ain't gotta, you don't have to worry. You ain't got to. My goodness. You don't have to worry about, uh, you don't have to worry about the, oh, wow, yeah. I'm contextualizing, Joey. I'm becoming one with the natives. So that's what kid foods include. I desire to eat all of these things, but by necessity, it's, it's necessary to my health that I not eat those things and eat those things exclusively. So by necessity, even though I don't always want to, I might eat squash, I might eat some broccoli, I might eat some green beans. Now, I've got to doctor those things up, you know, pour some Lucky Charms on the green beans and we're good to go. But it's necessity. And this is what Paul is saying. He's like, look, there's something I'd rather do. There's something I really desire to do. I desire to be with Jesus, but it is necessary that I remain. It's necessary that I stay on your account. It's necessary for you. You see, the necessity is not just for the lost, but it's also for the saints, because that's who he's talking about. We get that, right? We get the fact that it's necessary to, to stay here because we have to continue to, to spread the gospel. I mean, that's, that's obvious. Yeah, it's, it's necessary. And let me, let me break that down for just a second, because the word necessity is kind of strong. It's like, okay, so, so God needs us to do that? No, we don't, we don't say that. God doesn't need us to do anything. But there is a need there because of the way that God has set things up. God did not make it so that people come to Christ, especially the New Testament, without the gospel. God did not design it that way. He could have designed it any way he wanted to, but he designed it in the best possible way, which was what? Which was to give the gospel, to give the message, to make the man, and the man is the delivery boy or the delivery girl, to carry the message. That's why the scripture says that how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without the preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? God says, I have selected man to give the message to so that he, as the one with the beautiful feet, carries the message of the gospel that changes lives. And then those God appointed to salvation, they receive, they hear this gospel, and God gives them life. And I would say regenerates their heart at that point so that they have eyes to see and savor Christ. Thus, they call out for him. A sojourner has the duty to the already disciple and the not yet disciple. The already disciple is this. It's our responsibility as sojourners to one another. He says, this is necessary for your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain for this reason, for your progress and your joy in the faith. For your progress and for your joy in the faith. So a sojourner has a responsibility to other sojourners. We do scatter, but we have a responsibility just like Paul begins this talk when he says, through your prayers, through your supplication, and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's recognizing our role again in the role we have to one another for the progress and the joy in the faith. What does that mean? Well, in First Corinthians, I'm sorry, in, Roman, in, in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, he mentions love, he mentions knowledge, and he mentions fruitfulness, which I would argue that this is progress and joy in the faith. That you develop in your knowledge, you develop in your love, and you develop in fruitfulness, gospel, kingdom, advancement. It's also important and necessary for the not yet disciple. Our responsibility is also to the world. It's necessary for us to deliver the gospel message because God's blueprint for salvation is that those appointed to salvation would hear and respond to the gospel. Faith comes through hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, the gospel, Romans 10, 17. But finally, a sojourner doesn't just have a responsibility to other sojourners or to the lost, but they have a responsibility to the glory of Christ. Listen how Paul ends this section. He says, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He doesn't say glory in himself. He says that you might have cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's making sure that he diverts their attention to where it belongs. Just like he did in Lystra in Acts chapter 14 when they started praising him as Zeus and Hermes because of the blind man that, or the lame man that was healed. He says, focus your attention where it belongs and that's the glory of Jesus. 
Paul's goal was that his work, his message, and his suffering would ultimately point to Jesus. Successful sojourning is not measured by the finish line, but by the contents that mark our journey. So does your sojourn point to Christ? Because that's its intent. When you arrive at the finish line, as Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have, I have working towards the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. When that happens for you, what will be the markings that characterize your journey? Is your manner of life worthy of the gospel, which we'll see next week? Don't be content with simply finishing. I'm a Christian. I'm just going to coast until I die. Labor for a successful sojourn. Fill your days with the things that stir your affections for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, would you stir our affections for Jesus? Lord, would you make him more attractive to us? Would you make your word more attractive to us, to me? Would you give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus? Would you give us a heart and a mind to discern the truth of Jesus? Would you give us boldness that we need? Lord, like those saints who were given to fear but were emboldened through Paul's bodily sacrifice, Lord, may we use that same sacrifice from thousands of years ago and let that give us boldness. Lord, may we be optimistic opportunists. No matter what hardship we face, we are guaranteed those things. I know that no matter what we face or when it is, though it might be hard and though it might be sad and though it might be all of these things, Lord, give us the perspective that we need for a successful sojourn. And may we honor Christ in our body rather than shaming him in our body. We protect your saints as we leave this place. Begin to prepare us now for next week, for tomorrow, for this evening, for where we go and have lunch. May we be lights in the midst of darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.